Thanks for singing and praying uh, this morning. Uh, we continue on with our uh, Lenten series. Thanks, Tom. Where we have been asking two questions and, and rounding up those questions with a statement. Um, and those questions are, who is Jesus? Who are we or who am I? And then confess the difference. We discussed on Ash Wednesday a few weeks ago how these three things worth considering move us into a direction where we are really able to be oriented around the life of Christ. We believe in some really good news around here, and we talk about the good news just about every week. What we believe when we say the good news or the gospel is that we believe that life can be made new for all people, regardless of their past, even regardless of their present circumstances in life. We believe that the love and the grace and the mercy of Christ that we just talked about can actually change lives here on earth, where all of us sitting in this room have been born but that there is a way where we can be born again into a new life, a full life, where God's love meets us in our areas of shame, where God's love and his grace meets us in areas of regret and brokenness that we might think about. And he doesn't just leave us forgiven. We are forgiven, but he doesn't leave us there he actually invites us into a dynamic relationship with him where through this relationship we become more like him so that when we are growing in our relationship with him, we can befriend others and encounter others that do not yet know him and have not yet heard this, this good news. So that as we grow more like him and grow in our relationship with him, we have opportunities to invite others into a similar relationship with him. So when we ask the question, who is Jesus, who am I, confess the difference. We are not looking for a lengthy list on one side and then on the other side, a list of things that we are shameful about. What we are looking for are tangible differences between the example that Christ sets for us in scripture and that his spirit prompts us to in this life and we're looking for tangible gaps that we actually believe can be filled by the love and mercy and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. That we are actually being called to be like him and that the gap between him and us can actually be met and closed by the power of the resurrection. So this series is called The Great Reorientation. Because we're going to take some time to, yes, talk about those things, look at some different stories and scenes in Scripture. But we believe that there is a gap that's being closed for those who are deeply considering what Christ would do in our lives and, and how he would lead us into a deeper relationship with him. Last week, we looked at the scene of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness uh, a lot of you are here for that. If you weren't here for that, we do have all of our, our, our messages online at our website, and you can listen to those um, to, to catch up to speed. Uh, 
Um, but I, I do want to encourage you to turn to this morning's passage. We're going to be there in, in just a couple of minutes. Uh, but we're going to be in Luke chapter 13. Uh, there are Bibles under the chairs in front of you, kind of by your feet, hopefully. Uh, we're going to be on page 1,623, if you'd like to follow along with us this morning. Uh, but as we turn there, I want to catch us up to what we talked about last week. Um, last week, we looked at the story of Jesus in the wilderness, and it's a pretty common one that a lot of us talk about, where um, we see Jesus getting baptized, and then we read that he's immediately led into the wilderness, and he's led into this uh, dynamic with, with a tempter, with an enemy, uh, where um, Jesus is tested several different times on, on three different things, and uh, saving the details of that particular story, I do want to bring up to mention and bring to light kind of the, the closing and, and summarizing thing that we looked at last week, and it's this is that we conclude that God thinks that what gets done is important, but how it gets done is even more important. Um, we looked at how there are good things, hear me, good things that the tempter was tempting Jesus with. Um, these were actually things that we know how the story ends, that Jesus would eventually have under his rule and reign, where Jesus was tempted to, hey, I know you're hungry, so turn, turn this, these stones into bread. Well, Jesus would eventually become the bread of life. Not only that, but he would actually feed 15,000 people with seven loaves of bread, and that he would kind of orchestrate these miraculous things that took place. We talked about how there are shortcuts in the life and in the world that we live in right now, that there are shortcuts and temptations that are presented to us where we can still get the good things done, but that's not is what is most important. What is most important is how we do them. And there is a kingdom way in which those things get done. And so without looking at that passage and just giving the behavior modification things and just do this, don't do that, we actually looked at something completely outside of the box and outside of the conversation. As we talk about how we are to do things, we looked at one of uh, the psalmist's poems that discusses resting in the shadow of the Almighty. Discusses these ideas of resting and, and dwelling in the house of the Lord. That is where we operate out of. That we can, we can be confident in that if we are resting in the shadow of the Almighty, then out of that position, how things get done would be how they need to be done. Um, and our story this morning, hopefully, and, and even our psalm earlier that Desiree read, I'm sure is tying some of those things together. But today's story is going to follow that theme as well. Um, and I kind of want to set up the story that we're about to read here in Luke 13. Jesus is walking through Jerusalem. This is where we're going to pick up with this story. Jesus is walking through Jerusalem, and he is asked about who is going to be saved. That was a question that Jesus was asked a lot, is, is who's going to be saved? Uh, Jesus presents an answer, which we're not going to read, but what we're going to read is what he says after the answer, he kind of gives this, uh, this 
this aside, if you're familiar with theater at all, where, where there's this break in the action and where the, the, the main character is able to kind of break away and, and have this dialogue, this monologue, that's what we're going to read. And uh, it's going to be Luke chapter 13, starting at verse 31. Um, my particular translation has this section of scripture captioned off as Jesus's sorrow for Jerusalem. Pretty interesting. He's walking through Jerusalem. He's asked who's going to be saved. He gives an answer, and then he says this. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place. So in light of the answer that Jesus gives of who is going to be saved, Pharisees said, you need to leave. Go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Jesus replied, go tell that fox I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's a lot going on there, a lot of imagery that we could get into, but to drive the rest of our time, I, I'd like to share this with you, is that when it comes to responding to disruptions, people are patterned. So today we're going to be talking about responding to disruptions, and there's several different ways that we could go in light of this story, but this is what we're going to be talking about, is that when it comes to responding to disruptions... People are patterned. The story of Jerusalem, kind of the summary of Jerusalem, is that this is God's people. We can go way back in the beginning of um, our scriptures and read about the nation of Israel and read about the Israelites, and we read about God's people and God's land. And kind of the capital of God's people ends up being this place called Jerusalem where the people who lived in it and went, uh, went there and kind of migrated there. These were God's people. This was God's land. This was the capital of, of God, <laughs> as if we can geographically close him in, right? Um, like it would for anyone, it got to their head. Oh, my goodness. Like it would for anyone who thought that they were right it got to their head. There were two primary issues that people who lived in Jerusalem cared most about. It were, it were these two issues. It was, um, where is the kingdom going to come, physically, geographically? They believed it was them, but they still wanted to figure out and ask, where's the kingdom going to be, and who's going to be saved? Those were the two big things that people in Jerusalem cared about. 
they were convinced it was them, but they still wanted to be sure. You know, you know, sometimes you're like 99.9% convinced that you're right, but there, there's still that, eh. They wanted to be exactly sure. Where was the kingdom going to come and who was going to be saved? And God loved them enough to show them that they were wrong. Grab onto this here for a minute. Few weeks ago, we we looked at John three sixteen. God so loved the world that He gave, He sent. We open up Luke thirteen, and look at another people group that needed some guidance. And we read that Jesus sent prophets, and that the patterned people who lived in Jerusalem responded to the prophets by stoning the ones that were sent to them. Jesus loved Jerusalem enough not to leave them to themselves. A lot of times we think that space is the answer. And a lot of times we think that if we just give someone enough room that they'll work it out themselves. It would be the harder thing to actually meet someone in a really, really messy and sticky situation. That would actually be the harder thing. And so out of his love and and his love being perfect, he sends prophets and praise the Lord for prophets that were obedient to be sent because what prophets were known for was pretty much one thing and that was messing everything up. A prophet is someone who would enter into a land and preach a message and proclaim a truth that went completely against the status quo or the majority viewpoint of whatever it was. And Jerusalem's pattern to responding to disruptions was to reject the disruption. When we reject things, a lot of times we just avoid them, or we hide from those things, or we organize ourselves against the thing that's disrupting us. Jerusalem was patterned to literally kill those who they disagreed with. However, patterns come from somewhere. We are given patterns by parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, friends, and we kind of absorb these patterns and these these ways of going about life. But somewhere along the line, Jerusalem, God's people, formed a pattern. And it was shaped by their opinion. And so we learned something is that our patterns are shaped by our opinions. This is, exact, this is exactly what Jerusalem experienced and encountered. They had the opinion, and it was the majority opinion, that not only they were the right ones, but that everyone else were the wrong ones. It's one thing to believe that you're right. It is another and additional and separate thing for you to be consciously aware that anyone that's not in your club is wrong. We saw this play out this last weekend in New Zealand. I mean, this, I hope y'all are picking up on something today. I'm not really just talking about Luke 13. I, I hope we see this. This is the majority thinking of the world today in which we live. I'm not talking about just the United States. I could, but I'm not. 
This is the majority opinion of the world. I need to find and fix myself in a place in which I am right, and because of that, everyone else is wrong. We can call this elitism. And elitism breeds retaliated efforts. Because if I am right and everyone else is wrong, I need to show people that they are wrong. And we can get into some pretty messed up headspace. Jerusalem's elitism resulted in Jesus being full of sorrow, not pride, not happiness, not joy. Elitism breeds retaliated efforts and results in sorrow. It doesn't result in sorrow for the people that are on your team, but it results in sorrow for the creator of the universe and the one who is trying to organize us around the life of Christ. Jerusalem had it wrong. Stoning the prophets that were sent to it <laughs> was wrong. That was, that was a wrong thing. Jerusalem's problem on the surface was the stoning, right? I mean, on, on the surface, their problem was that they killed people. That's a bad thing. But there's something that's happening below the surface. The tip of the iceberg is the murdering, is the killing. Below the surface is their response to disruptions. Disruptions come when our opinion is confronted with an alternate opinion. And I want to be clear here. We define our disruptions. We all have opinions. Opinions are fine. But disruption comes when our opinions are confronted with an alternate opinion. I have found that over the last five or six months, that one of the biggest opportunities of growth for the capital C global church is to consider how we are to respond for those to those who disagree with us. I think this is a massive, massive opportunity for spiritual formation. How will you respond to someone who disagrees with you? You define your disruptions. Why? Because what would disrupt you might not disrupt me. What would disrupt your household might not disrupt my household or someone who lives in this neighborhood, their household. Something that would disrupt them might not disrupt you either. It's important to understand this distinction because we generally receive disruption as attack. It's very important to understand that. We generally interpret alternate opinions not just as alternate opinions, but as actual attacks on our opinion and actual attacks on us and those who think that way, thus forming elitism. And elitism breeds retaliated efforts. But there is a massive difference between being attacked and being disagreed with. There's a huge, I mean, there's a huge difference between someone disagreeing with you and you being at like actually attacked. 
Does anyone have a favorite color that's not red? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Okay, so I know who to punch later. Or not. Because <laughs> we can disagree. We don't have to attack. But somehow along the line, our tribes and our peoples, we, we draw those lines, right? We draw the lines where if someone crosses that line, then they're attacking me. That's not how it is. We are rarely, rarely, rarely attacked. And this was a tension that was being discussed like immediately after Jesus' ministry. I know we're talking about it now, and I know it's really easy for us to be talking about these things now. There's a lot of things happening in our country. There's a lot of things happening around the world, and it can be very easy to say that this is a problem that we are uniquely having today. I want to tell you that there is absolutely nothing new under the sun and that any social issues that we're dealing with today have been dealt with before or have been not dealt with before. Um, there is a book that I'm reading. It's very big. I don't know why I choose to read big books written by doctors and people with, with PhDs. And I don't, uh, Jesse knows why. He's a good friend. And, um, so I'm reading right now about um, the patient ministry of the early church. The author cho chooses to use the word fermentation. The patient fermenting of the early church. And it's subtitled, The Implorable Rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire. This is a very exciting book. And I'm reading about this guy. His name is um, Cyprian. He was the bishop of Carthage in the year 2060 AD. We're talking about two generations past the ascension of Jesus Christ. We're not far off from the from the life of Christ. And he had a platform in which he contributed to the early movement of Christianity. There were plagues that were happening in this time, 240, 250s, 260s AD. There were plagues that were happening, and there was a way of thinking back then, and there could be still a way of thinking now, where if something bad is happening to me, then I did something bad. That was, that was the conventional wisdom. Or if something bad is happening to someone in my family, then, then that person did something bad, or the family did something bad, and that, and that a, a punishment is being laid down. And Cyprian kind of inserted himself in, in a very unique message in that day and age. He looked at a passage in the Sermon on the Mount, we've read this here before, where um, essentially that God does not show favoritism. What Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is that he lets the sun shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. Is that his blessing, his, his rain, his, his pouring out on his creation, there's no favoritism that exists there. And so it kind of debunks the idea that I'm being punished because of this plague. And so the question for Cyprian and what he presented to the early Christians, because this is what was happening, is that people that the early Christians called pagans were being attacked by the plague, because this is what plagues do, but also the Christians were being attacked by the plague as well. And so Cyprian addressed the issue, and he went outside of the box, and he said, 
the issue here is not why is this happening. The issue at hand is how are we going to respond. And I kind of just said the same thing for the fourth time, right? I mean, the issue is not what is being done. The issue is not what am I going to do to that person who disagrees with me. The issue in 260, the year 260, and the same issue today for us in 2019, is when someone does or says something that I disagree with, what am I going to do about it? Jerusalem stoned people. (laughs) The only thing that we really have left to do is is consider what Christ would have for us to do. And we find this in Luke chapter 13, verse 34. How often I have longed to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. The solution comes from the heart that is experiencing sorrow in this scene. Jesus does not say, start a 501c3 and organize yourself around something. Jesus does not say, go door to door and try and convince people to think like you think. Out of his sorrow for people that were caught up in elitism, out of his sorrow for people that he created that were convinced that they had it right and a lot of others had it wrong, the solution comes from his love. I just wish that I, just wish that I could just be closer to you than I am right now. Imagine the image, if you would, of a mother hen gathering her chicks or babies under wings. Imagine the closeness that's taking place here. We read last week and talked about it. This is extremely similar imagery to resting in the shadow of the Almighty. Last week we talked about how coiled up you need to be in order to fit into a shadow. How humble of a position you need to physically take in order to rest in an actual shadow of the Almighty. Same things with being under the wings, gathered under the wings of Christ. But this is what I want to say. A few things when we're talking about what it means to be under the wings. Note that being under the wings of Christ, the solution that we are presented with this morning is not first a place of protection and comfort, but that this is a place of formation and refinery. This is not shelter for us to hide from the people we disagree with. It is under the wings of Christ where he says, you still have more to learn. We get close to Jesus not so that we can be hidden from everything else, We get close to Jesus so that we can become more like Jesus and so that we can more faithfully approach the things that disagree with us in life. 
So yes, Lord, we want to be under the wings, but that is the place where we are invited. Hey, you still got some more walking with me to do. And you still have more to learn and you didn't have it right earlier. This is where the great reorientation can take place is when we choose to dwell in the house of the Lord, rest in the shadow of the Almighty, and say, yes, I want to be gathered under the wings of Christ. Reorienting ourselves around the life of Christ must take place with Christ. It cannot take place separate from Christ. So to summarize these things, I'd like to give us a thought to consider as we close this morning. Allow Jesus to set the tone as you journey through the disruption. And the key word there is through, journey through. There is no need to kick and scream. There's no need to retaliate. There's no need to use a tool that's been created by man to let everyone else know what you think and therefore drawing a line between you and someone that might not think that way. There's no need to do those things. If you want to consider reorienting yourself in alignment with Christ, allow him to set the tone as you journey through the disruption. Don't hide. Don't put up a wall. Don't put up a boundary or a barrier. Journey through. And I know it's been a bit heavier of a morning, but... I want you to see the good news here is that Jesus actually wants to walk with you. If I consider the difference between me and Christ right now, but I can believe that he actually wants to walk with me right now, who I am right now, that is, for me, honestly, really good news. It would be good news for us that regardless of what we did last year, 10 years ago, yesterday, or this morning, that Jesus wants to walk with you. It would be good news that the creator of the universe is at the same time completely aware of the decisions and the thoughts that you are making and having in the present day and age. And at the same exact time says, the only place I want you to be is not far from me, but as close to me as possible. That is the love of Christ. That is the gift that is being offered to everyone in this room and just so happens to be everyone outside of this room as well. So, I don't know where you land this morning. Um, I don't know where you're at. I don't know what this last week looked like for you. I don't, I don't know what the week to come is going to look like for you. I know some of your stories. I don't know 
any parts of uh, some of your stories. But I can know and not know any of those things to be able to say with confidence that if you find yourself in an area or position in life or a way of thinking or a pattern of decision-making and you recognize that it doesn't quite align with Jesus, I want you to know that you don't have to fix yourself up before you would make a decision to say, I want to be gathered under the wings of Christ. That I want to rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Because that's the place where maybe if I could be there, then it, it would be in that moment where I can feel loved and forgiven for the first time in a while. Where the mess that's taking place in my household, the mess that's taking place in a relationship, or a situation at work, or, or anything. Where maybe the answer is not how far can I get from that situation, but maybe the answer is how close can I get to the only one who can bring hope and good news to that situation. And that is where you have an opportunity to receive an invitation where you say, I'm not perfect now. I sure as heck have not been perfect up until this point. I want, you, I want you to know that the end goal here isn't perfection. I want you to know that the end goal is resting in the shadow of the Almighty. I want you to know that the end goal is you to just make a decision. I have been walking this way, but now I choose to walk this way. I'm going to choose to be a part of a church family of any kind that is making that same decision, where the people that come and go from it during the gatherings that they have are committing to themselves that they're going to try their hardest and that they're going to go all in and understand that everything matters, how I spend my time, what I say, what I think, how I behave, the decisions that I make. It all matters. It all matters to God and his love and hope and mercy and grace can meet us in those places. So if that's you this morning, someone who would want to receive that invitation and say yes to that invitation, have more questions about that invitation, have more questions about what it is like to receive that invitation, taking an intentional step down a completely different path, I want you to know two things, is that you are invited to make such a decision this morning. If you'd like to talk more about it or learn more about it, I want to talk with you after our gathering time. Don't wait. Don't wait for it to get warmer outside because <laughs> that literally might never happen. Um, don't wait for, I don't know, that one thing that you're thinking about right now. I'll talk to Pastor Seth after I do that. Don't wait until after you do that. You might not do it. So I'd like to invite uh, Tom and Desiree and Brandon to come back up. They're going to lead us in a closing song. This song is so beautifully written and talks about the holiness of God and how the holiness of God meets us in these moments of confusion and these moments where we don't know what to think or what to say or what to do or what to decide.